0: Well I want to begin this morning by, if you'll indulge me in planting an image in your head, uh, the very eccentric 20th century Australian born composer Percy Granger uh, wrote a piece called The Immovable uh, Doe, not Doe, uh, D-O-E, but Doe as in the letter C. And it's called The Immovable dough, keeping in mind, of course, that Granger was quite an eccentric man, uh, that when he composed this piece, uh, his uh, harmonium, his uh, pump organ had a problem. It had a broken C. And so uh, as he's trying to compose, he has this droning C in the background. And rather than uh, fix uh, the pump organ, he played on, as it were, composed on. And he says in uh, talking about his own piece, he says uh, that the high drone on C sounds throughout the whole piece. And so he composes in order to fit this broken uh, key. And as the piece goes on, there's always a droning C in the background. It's called the immovable Doe. It's a beautiful piece of music, but it seems as though he was too lazy to fix the harmonium. In this passage, we uh, are actually told how to uh, deal with or how to look upon that uh, droning sea in our own lives. What this passage is telling us is it's telling us that every Christian has a new life. And with that new life, every Christian has a new relationship to their sin. Every Christian, all of us, has a new relationship to sin through the power of the gospel. And what Paul is saying is not only do we have a new relationship to our sin through the power of the gospel, uh, but what Paul is really saying is that God has already begun to use us as instruments for his own holiness, for his own righteousness. He's already begun to use us as instruments of righteousness, even though every Christian here anticipates that time when they'll be in the new heavens and the new earth, and there will be no sin at all. Now, Paul opens our passage in the first two verses uh, quite clearly for us. Uh, A a child could understand he opens with a very practical question. Now, it's a revealing question to be sure, but it's very practical. And then really what Paul is saying uh, with this question is is he's asking, are we to be content with sin in our lives? That's the question. Are, Are we to just be content with the sin in our lives? We might ask, looking at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6, what it it is that provokes such a question, are we to be content with sin in our lives? Well... Uh, Let me suggest to you that what provokes this question are the very verses uh, that come just before. At the very end of chapter 5 in verses 20 and 21, uh, there is a vocabulary in those two verses that actually show up in the question that Paul asks in uh, Romans 6.1. And the vocabulary are, uh, to be sure, they're words that are familiar. Uh, the word uh, sin shows up in the question, but it also uh, shows up in the passage uh, before Romans 5, 20 and 21. Uh, the word uh, grace uh, shows up. Uh, even the word uh, that, a very small word in the Greek, uh, shows up in the question of Romans 6:1, but also shows up in the two verses uh, pre- preceding uh, Romans 6, And then interestingly enough, the word for abound that we see in the question is really the Greek word that means increase. And if you look in Romans 5, 20 and 21 in the ESV, the word increase shows up twice there. Well, the word increase is exactly the same uh, Greek word as the word abound. And so Paul's connecting his question uh, to uh, what's come before, and that's, that's what provokes uh, the question. Uh, there's a bit of confusion as, as Paul closes out Romans chapter 5 that uh, sin uh, under Adam had some kind of reign over us, but now that we're Christians professing faith in Jesus Christ having the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts now that we're Christians that reign of sin that was true under Adam well that rain doesn't exist for us now and we can imagine Paul's audience. Reading those two verses and then the question coming to mind, well, wait, wait just a minute, are we to be content with sin in our lives? Uh, they know that they have sin in their lives. Uh, Paul is uh, asking the question for them. It's, he's anticipating that they're certainly going to ask this question, and it's right there in chapter 6. But that question in Romans 6:1, the question that's tied so tightly to what comes before through its vocabulary, inside that question, There's one word that doesn't show up in 520 and 21. Do you know what that word is? The word is is translated in the ESV as continue. Continue. Now look at that question that Paul opens chapter 6 with and think that the word continue is the one that really stands out to Paul and he wants it to stand out to his audience. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Read that sentence and focus on the word continue, and now you understand what it is that's provoked the question. Paul's asking, for us, are we then to remain in our sin? That's literally what continue means. And he's, he says in verse 2 that uh, we are not to live in our sin. But the phrasing of verse 1, uh, he, he knows the tone of the questioners. And, and the questioners are thinking about sin. They're thinking about their daily sins, sins they committed just that day. They're thinking about how sin may actually uh, be receiving permission to continue or, re- or remain over the course of their lives. And look what he says in verse 1. Uh, the, uh, tinged with the question is this attitude of almost hopefulness. Wouldn't it be great if my sin increased grace? Just think about that. Shameful, perhaps, to talk about this. But think about that. That's what's behind the question. Wow, wouldn't it be great if my sin actually served to increase grace? I can can live with my sin. I can can be comfortable with my sin. It's It's a natural organic part of me. I can talk openly about my sin. I can broadcast my sin. Because as I do these things, it increases grace. There's an attitude or a tone behind that question. Shall we continue in sin? And so it's a practical question, but it reveals an awful lot, doesn't it? We actually like sin lives with us for a while we want to excuse it we want to justify it well so there's there's a definitive question Uh, can I be content with my sin continue in my sin and what Paul does what Paul does is in verse 3 3 through 10 he actually offers a definitive answer it's a complex answer but it's definitive nonetheless he's describing confidently those things that are true for every Christian and what he's saying in 3 through 10 is this. Is he, he's saying that, that Jesus actually alters our relationship to sin. So uh, we uh, continue to sin even as Christians. But what Jesus has done, his uh, work of death, his uh, work in the resurrection, uh, what Jesus is doing is he's actually altering that relationship that we have to sin. Now, if you have uh, heroes in your life, all of us do, there are certain things that your heroes have the power to do, even if they're dead. Uh, Your uh, heroes have the power to inspire you. To, to lighten your heart, to embolden you, to uh, increase your desire to do better at what it, whatever it is you want to do better at. So if your hero is an athlete who has died, uh, that athlete can inspire you. But not only that, your heroes have the ability to be examples to you, even after they die. And some of us love to read uh, biography after biography of our heroes. They inspire us, but they also present an, uh, uh, an example to us. Well, what Jesus does, heroes can't do. Have you ever thought what it means as a Christian to say something like Jesus continues to reign? What does that mean? Well, it means that he is in charge of the world. It means that he is going to uh, bring, uh, uh, he's going to restore all things. He's going to to draw me to himself. Uh, Jesus is reigning uh, right now. Colossians 1.17 says that in Jesus, all things hold together. And we think the all things are everything out there. He holds them together. We look at Hebrews uh, 3, 6, that that, uh, he is uh, faithful over God's house, and and we are God's house, and so Jesus exercises his reign uh, by uh, holding the house together. But why don't we think that Jesus exercises his reign by working not just out there, and not just in in the life of the church body, but that Jesus works inside of us, in our hearts. That he's exercising his reign in this life that we live that is called the life of someone who professes faith in Jesus Christ. Oftentimes we look at Jesus as if he is some kind of a historical figure who can inspire us or a historical figure that can be a good example to us. And that is true. But Paul, in verses 3 through 10, is saying more than that. He's saying that we are united to Christ in such a way that aspects of his life continue to exert an influence on each of us as Christians. A biography doesn't do that, but Jesus does. He is continuing to uh, exert an influence on each of us as Christians because, as Paul says in verse 5, that we are united to him. We are united to him as Christians. And so in verses 3 through 7, Paul says that uh, Jesus' death on the cross continues to exert an influence on us as Christians. Uh, Just uh, look at what Paul says. He says in verse 3 that we're baptized into his death. That's not likely a reference to uh, a physical baptism, it's more a reference to the Holy Spirit's work of conversion, uh, washing our hearts, giving us a new heart, a heart of flesh rather than a heart of stone, that we would say yes to the gospel. The the death on the cross exerts an influence on us as Christians. We're baptized into his death in verse 3. And then in verse 4, we uh, were in some way personally buried with Jesus, when Jesus was, was buried, when Jesus died, we were somehow, well, we were, we were there. And he says in verse 6, he says that our old self, our old man, was actually crucified with him. I wasn't even born when Jesus died on the cross. But Paul says in verse 6 that a part of us has, has been crucified with him. Paul says in verse 8, we died with him. And and so you see, Jesus' death on the cross, it it continues to exert this influence on every Christian, even though his death was a, a, a once for all time death, we're united to him in his death. And then after 3 through 7, moving on into verses 8 through 10, uh, Paul uh, continuing to talk about how it is that we're united to Christ. He says that we're united to him not only in his death, but in 8 through 10, uh, his resurrected life exerts an influence on every Christian. Uh, Paul says before in verse 4, he says, We live in newness of life because Jesus was raised from the dead and he'll never die again. And verse 9, uh, because he lives his life, uh, we, ha- we live our lives. In verse 10, uh, we're told how he lives his life. He lives his life to God. This is tremendously striking language. It's not just striking to us. It would have been striking to the original audience as well. What does this mean? We're united to Jesus as we profess faith, that his work of dying on the cross for our behalf actually is with me, exerting influence on me today, and so too is life, the life that uh, he perfectly uh, lives unto God in verse 10, that life exerts an influence on me today. That's why I began by uh, asking you to think about what we mean when we say that Jesus reigns. When we say that, we're we're almost always talking about his, his global reign or his reign in the life of the church, but he reigns in our lives as Christians because we are united to him. And his death exerts an influence and his life exerts an influence. Now, we should ask this. If this terminology... A terminology like being baptized uh, into his death. If this is striking, why? Why is Paul so striking? I believe we have no other answer than to say that Paul is so striking, speaking in such a graphic way, because he knows that Christians want almost more than anything to continue in sin as if nothing happened. That's graphic as well, isn't it? Now, we certainly hope that that's not the case with our lives. But isn't it remarkable, my brother and my sister, how easy it is for us to excuse our sin, to justify our sin. It's tremendously easy. Why why is it so easy? Well, we've done it a long time. And there's something about Christianity that is so glorious and beautiful that Jesus died died on the cross and he lives for me. But there's something about Christianity that's almost beyond imagination and that is that Jesus is with me working in me by the Holy Spirit that his death and his life would would exert such an influence on me that my sins would harass me less. That I would see more of my sinfulness and I would stop excusing my sin. Now that that's almost beyond imagination because we excuse it and we justify it and not only that. What we do is we organize our life around that droning sea, that C note that's playing in the background. It's always there. I know it's going to be there. I confess the same sins over and over again, and there's a sense in which we, uh, we have a defeatist attitude to that sin because in my own little arena, there's nothing more that I can do. I'm giving it all I've got, and the sea in the background, it drones on. But I get up Monday, and I make my way through life, and the sea it drags on. I know that it's there, I don't like that it's there, but I can, I can live with it being there. And over time, over time, we stop confessing it. And over time, we call it a part of our organic life. It's been with me so long. It's just who I am. And over time, the droning sea, I don't even hear it anymore. Do you hear it? Paul knows that even as Christians, we want almost more than anything to continue in our sin. Almost longing that if I continue, grace will simply increase. It's good to continue. But Paul says that all of our life is connected to the work of Jesus, that his death and his resurrected life exert an influence on us because we are united to him as Christians. And Paul speaks so boldly in verse 6, it's striking. It's it's almost as if there has to be some Greek angle to get out of verse 6. Paul says that the body of sin has been brought to nothing. We are no longer sin's servant. And verse 7 says we are set free. Sin used to be an immovable component of our lives. Sin continues to bother us as Christians and will bother us as Christians until Jesus returns. But sin, my brother and my sister, ought never bother us in the same way that it bothers a non-believer. It ought never bother us in ways that it bothers a non-believer. We ought never speak about those things in our lives that are unpleasing to God as if they are our very identity. Jesus says it is a droning sea. Something is broken. Now, to be united to Christ is to have an entirely different relationship to that sin such that to continue in it is actually an absurdity. Now, we struggle with sin. But we don't ignore sin and we treat sin always as an interloper, as an invader. In this passage, Paul is going to close with some, rem- with some remarkable applications. Oftentimes, when scholars look at Romans, uh, they assume that Romans chapter 1 through 11 is uh, doctrine and Romans 12 through 16 is where all of the application is. And to be sure, uh, that does happen in Romans. Uh, When you hit chapter 12, which we looked at earlier in the worship service, we find a lot of uh, imperative verbs, a lot of commands. This is now what you are to do. But in this passage, in verses 11 through 14... Paul actually brings forward some of those commands. In fact, he brings forward three of them. And we have three practical applications in this passage. Now, keep in mind where we started. We started in, uh, in where Paul actually understands that we, that we desire to continue in our sin. And then Paul describes a reality, a reality that is true for all Christians. All Christians are united to Jesus in his death and in his life. All Christians have the influence, the reign of Jesus in our lives each and every day. And so the practical question, shall we be content with our sin? Shall we continue in our sin? He answers with a definitive answer that Jesus has actually altered that relationship that you have with sin, such is the power of the gospel. And well, now what? Verses 11 through 14, there are three commands. I want to finish here because this is where Paul finishes. There's three very clear commands in the Greek. They stand out as if they have already been highlighted. The first one is in verse 11, the second in verse 12, and the third in verse 13. Uh, The commands can be uh, remembered this way. There's something to consider, there's something to reject, and there's something to give. Something to consider, something to reject, and something to give in the Christian life verse 11 there's something to consider the word literally there is calculate so he says consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus consider yourselves dead to sin calculate yourselves dead to sin this pains me to say but Paul is using a a spreadsheet word an accounting word and he's asking you to to lay your life out as if it were a spreadsheet And and consider who you are. Sin actually doesn't belong in the column that it feels like it belongs. Consider yourself dead to sin. I am dead to sin. Do you profess faith in Jesus Christ? You are dead to sin. Sin, as a Christian, does not own me. And I ought to, as I consider myself, never speak as if sin does Own me. And you ought to never speak as if sin owns you. Always, always be quick to confess. That's why humility and confession of sin is so important in a Christian's daily life. An awareness of sin, a growing sorrow for sin, through the help of God's scripture, through the help of our life in God's church. That is good for a Christian to know our sin because we can confess our sin. We're treating it as something that doesn't belong. Never speak as if sin owns you. A Christian is dead to sin. Well, can we be more specific? I think that the end of Romans chapter one serves us very, very well. At the end of Romans chapter one, uh, Paul lists a number of sins. And when we ask the question, well, uh, am I dead to some sins but not other sins? Uh, Am I dead to all sin? Uh, When we look at the end of Romans chapter 1, Paul gives a list of those things that are displeasing to God, those things that are, as our confession says, transgressions against God's law. This is what sin is. Uh, You and I don't get to determine what sin is. I am dead to sin. And in the end of chapter 1, I am dead to covetousness. I am dead to envy. I am dead to murder. I am dead to deceit. I am dead to homosexuality. I am dead to gossip. I am dead to boastfulness. I am dead to, I am dead to, I am dead to. Paul has given us a list of sin at the end of Romans chapter 1. The droning sea does not own you. And the droning sea does not own me. Consider yourself dead to sin. Now that's very powerful. So many unanswered questions to be sure, but Paul is using an accounting term. Put it in the spreadsheet. You are someone who is dead to sin. That's the first application. The second application is uh, we've moved from something to consider to something to reject in verse 12. Paul says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. He couldn't be any more clear. Do not let sin reign philosophically. No, that's not what he's saying. Do not let sin reign as a a, a theological truth. He says, do not let sin sin reign in your mortal body. A very earthy way of speaking about our lives. Paul says that if you're to not let sin reign in your mortal body, he's he's asking you to, to tear the usurping king from the throne. Uh, Paul says that to lust, the word lust is in our passage, to lust or to toy with the, uh, the passion, uh, that's the lust word, to toy with the passion of sin is actually to allow sin that march up to the throne. And he says, don't let it rain. Don't let it rain. Now, sin will never be atop that throne in heaven. We know that. But Paul is saying that even now, we need to suspect sin's ascendancy in our lives. We need to suspect the work of passion, the work of lust, as sin slowly creeps up to a place that it does not belong. And so Paul says, consider yourself dead to sin, but, but here he's saying to suspect your passions, suspect your lusts. And he's saying that, the, that this droning sea, it doesn't belong. And you need to see that. You need to sense it. The droning sea doesn't belong. There's something to consider, to calculate about yourself. And there's something to, uh, to reject, to reject the ascendancy of sin and passion in your life. And then finally in verse 13, there's something to give, something to present And Paul says there to present yourselves to God. He says that your entire life belongs to God. Even your members. As we read that word members. He really means this. This. Your mind. Your mouth. Your ears. Your eyes. Even your members belong to God. Present everything about yourself to God. Now let me uh, strike us again because this is very hard but we happen to live in an age uh, that is gilded with self-worship personal identity is everywhere. An inner directed thoughts and definition are all over culture today and we have a lot of power to broadcast our personal uh, identity, to study our personal identity, to uh, place our, our, our tastes, our likes, our wishes out in front of us to in many ways uh, refashion ourselves. A gilded age of self-worship. And verse 13 leaves no room for that. I want to give my God members of myself that are uncorrupted by that droning sea. And you want to do that as well. But but Paul holds nothing back in verse 13. He says, present yourselves, all of your members to God. That's worship. So just just going back, consider consider yourself, uh, something to consider. The the, the droning sea, it actually, uh, it it doesn't own you, it doesn't belong, it shouldn't be in that column. There's something to consider about that droning sea. And then there's something to reject as the droning sea gets louder and louder in your life. uh, Make it, make sure that it doesn't rise to a position of ascendancy in your life in such a way uh, that it reigns you. It doesn't belong. And then finally, there's something to present. We want to present everything about ourselves to God in such a way that not just the the things that I get caught with, my behaviors and my speech, but my very thoughts, my very intentions, the things that I do privately, that everything that I present to God, even my very members, is uncorrupted by the droning sea. Now, there's a lot here for us to think about. This is very difficult to be sure. But Paul is saying that these three uh, very difficult applications, they come to us not because we look at Jesus as a historical figure and he uh, becomes inspiring and an example to us. Now, many of us have tried that for for many years. We look at Jesus in that way and the the inspiration and the example of Jesus, we expect to do these three things. Help us to understand that droning sea in our lives and to eradicate its presence. But an inspiration and an example is not going to do that. But praise be to God that the gospel of grace is God's power unto salvation. And your conversion is not where God's work stops in your life. It's something I did and now I can move on. A Christian is someone who is united to Jesus Christ. And his death still exerts an influence over you. That he died to sin such that you will never be condemned for your sin. And it never has a position of ownership over you. Jesus' death on the cross and your profession of faith. Well, it makes the droning sea very evident. You can see it. You can hear it. And as you mature as a Christian, you can see it and hear it more clearly over time but it'll never own you. You are dead to it. It will not last for all eternity. And you are called to present your life in such a way that the droning sea is acknowledged, is dealt with, is confessed. It humbles you to be sure, but it never becomes comfortable. Now, there's some comfort that I need to share with you. You and I, as Christians, are not alone. We're not alone. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling richly in us. How beautiful that God knows about my desire to continue in my sin, and yet He still tabernacles with me. He knows my love for my sin. He knows my tenacious grip upon my sin. He knows my desire to uh, milk out of that sin everything I can. He knows my desire to assume that the only way sin's going to be dealt with is at the second coming, so right now, get used to the droning sea. God knows that about you, and he knows that about me, and yet he has not left you, and he hasn't left me. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling richly in us. And this is true for every Christian. Some of you think that your sins are so big and they're so filthy. Fine, they're big and they're filthy. But your Jesus will never, never leave you. And so that's the first thing. You and I, were not alone. But here's the second thing. What God knows about our sinfulness is actually far more deep than what we know about our sinfulness. Ponder that. He knows things about us that we don't know ourselves. At the second coming of Jesus, that's what it means for Jesus to judge Christians. We will understand more clearly then than we ever have in our life how sinful and filthy we are, how utterly unlovable we are. God knows our sin more deeply than we know our sin and he has not left us and not only that God continues to magnify himself in our lives he continues to work by his spirit in such a way that sin loses its grip sin loses its grip in our lives he will never leave us and he is united to Jesus Christ so that the life that we live is a life that is filled with that union. We're dead to sin because of what Jesus did on the cross. We can say things about sin that a non-believer cannot say. And the life that we live, we live in newness and fullness and closeness to the presence of God because of the life that Jesus lives before God. Well, every Christian, every Christian has a new life with a new relationship to their sin. And what Paul is saying here is that God has already begun to use us as his own instruments for righteousness. It may be so very slight, but he has already begun through union with Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, we would ask that the droning sea, that that music that's floating in the back of our minds, that that music that is exhibited in our thoughts, In our actions, in our speech, we pray, Heavenly Father, (laughs) that we would consider ourselves dead to sin, that we would reject the authority that sin claims in our lives, and that we would present ourselves, all of ourselves, to you as pleasing in your sight. And We can do none of these things without your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Father, for being with us, for your own glory, in Jesus' name. Amen.